G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. This is Ian Chappell and we're talking about life, larrikins and cricket. Ian, tell us a little bit about the book. You've been involved in cricket and media for decades and yet despite many other cricketers and past cricketers bringing out stories from the road and stories from their careers, you're only just doing it now. Why take so long? Well, I did write a few anecdote books uh, when I first retired. I'm not sure it was around about that time or maybe a bit later. I, I thought one day I wouldn't mind having a crack at some short stories. And I used to make all these little notes on scraps of paper and beer coasters and, you know, they're all over the place, and I'd just throw them in the bottom of the drawer. And I also kept all the accreditation from sporting events and, uh, you know, if I went to a concert or I went to a sporting event, uh, I'd keep the ticket stubs and just throw them in the drawer. And a couple of years ago, I, I opened the drawer and it was a bit of a mess, so I thought I'd better tidy this up. And I saw all these little scraps of paper and thought, you know, I better start putting these on the computer. They're starting to fade and everything. And then I thought, oh, why don't I write a story or two and just see how it feels? And I really got into it and started to enjoy it because it was so different to the writing that I normally do, you know, newspaper or magazine writing and basically about cricket. And this was different. And uh, before I knew where I was, uh, there was a book there. So it was it was enjoyable to do it. Um, some of the stories, are, you know, some of the anecdotes I've told before, but the, you sort of weave them into a, into a story. As I say, it was it was quite interesting to do. What sort of reaction have you gotten from people who've had a look at your book, or, or maybe you know it's only early days that it's been released, or, or mm. some of the early people that have gotten in quickly to to buy the book after it's been released? What sort of reaction have people given you? as to the stories and the actual content of your book? Well, probably the two most common things are people say, oh, it's good to get the, the background uh, story to both sport and to people. Because, I mean, all the, all the stories in the book have a sporting theme to them, but they're more about people and life than they are about the actual sport. And, and, and the other thing that is commonly said is it's pretty easy to read. So, um, you know, I don't know whether that's uh, a tribute to the writing or whether it's just the fact that I don't use too many big words. So you've done it all yourself. You've put the hard work in and, and worked out how to put the, the book together and, and done all the stories because I know some people like to have a professional author or, or someone with a bit of writing experience to help them out and make sure their their thoughts are clear or is that the case with you or you've done it all yourself? No, I've done it all myself. Well, when I say all myself, you know, obviously it's been subbed. Um, my wife is a very good sub-editor actually, which helps because she's been doing it for 30 years. So she understands my style of writing. And then obviously, uh, you know, Patrick Mangan from Random House, he, he went through it and he was very good actually. He was terrific to work with. But the, I, I started writing newspaper uh, columns back in 1973 and I got my first job with The Age in Melbourne. And when we when I went in to interview, the guy said, so you want to write a newspaper column? Yep. 
And he said, what about a ghostwriter? And I said, look, I'd like to have a crack at writing it myself, uh, if you don't mind. And he said, okay, we'll do that. And he said, after six weeks, we'll have a look at it, see how it's going, and then we can have another chat. And I never heard from him again. The first column I wrote, I, I actually, you know, uh, handwritten on paper or in a notebook or something like that. Then I typed it up on the old typewriter, you see, and I thought, well, that's a bit crazy. Why don't you type it the first one? And so I've typed uh, ever since and now, obviously, with computers. And in fact, to me, uh, writing, I'd almost say that the subbing is more interesting now than the writing on a, on a computer. Because in the old days, you had the, you know, the little scraps of paper uh, the, mm. that you'd put in the typewriter. <laughs> and, you know, you'd have a whole pile. I think Red Smith, the great uh, American sports writer, once said, uh, you haven't got an opening power until you're knee deep in, um, in paper. Yeah. Um, but the problem was, in those days, if you you sort of read back through it and you thought, oh, that should be that fourth par should be up in the second par and the second par should be down here in the tenth par, mm. and you think, oh no, I won't do that. <laughs> you know, it's too hard to fiddle around. But now with the computer and the cut and paste, it's it makes it a hell of a lot easier. So, what are some of the stories that you've been able to bring out? Is it all about cricket, or is it about also some of your work uh, with Channel Nine doing Wide World of Sports? Yeah, there's a bit of wide world of sports and, you know, the faux pas that cost me a three-week holiday, um, which was stupid, really, because when I joined Channel 9, David Hill was the um, was the producer and he was the guy behind uh, the televising of World Series cricket. And he was a brilliant producer. And the first thing he told me was, uh, treat every microphone as though it's live. And he said, there are four words you don't say on television. Well, I managed to get three of them into one sentence. Oops. So, yes, that's right. <laughs> Oops, yeah. And a three-week holiday, which was bad news because my wife was uh, doing a lot of painting at the time, so I had to go and paint. <laughs> so it was a real punishment. <laughs> you know, I tell the story of that. And, and there's always a funny side to uh, to even the worst the worst moments. But, you know, there's stories there about uh, I, I covered five Augusta Masters and I talk about uh, Augusta, the, the place, the you know, the golf course, because people – People are fascinated when, as soon as they hear you've been, oh, you've been to the Masters, what's it like? Uh, and I talk about a golf match I had with Sean Connery, uh, which was a terrific experience. Um, BBC had a, um, a celebrity golf tournament that they used to telecast, and I played in the first mixed foursomes. So I played with a, a woman named Winnie Wooldridge, who was uh, her maiden name was Winnie Shaw, and she was a semi finalist at Wimbledon. But more importantly, she was a one handicap golfer. She was my partner, which was very, very helpful. And we played against Sean Connery and his French wife, not Diane Chilento, the Australian wife, but uh, Micheline, his his French wife. And it was nine holes uh, we played this. Uh, and Sean, Sean and I were about the same sort of handicap, I think sort of nine, somewhere around there at the time. Micheline was more, more like 15 or 16, but, and she was tiny. She was only about as high as a one would. And Sean was really competitive, and he kept telling her every shot, you know, play this, play that club, you know, do this, do that. And I think after about four holes, you know, Micheline, I can't speak French, but I think it was something along the lines of get stuffed and mind your own business. Mm. I'm playing my own game here. And, uh, and then we had a game of snooker. Sean and I had a game of snooker afterwards with his son Jason and uh, one of Jason's friends so it was a it was a terrific experience Ian, as you look back over some of the stories that you you've told in your book and some of the experiences that you've had what are some of the the standout moments for you I guess probably the the biggest standout moment and I, the chapter's called the bat boy grows up and I was uh, as a kid as about four and a half five year old kid my father played uh, as well as playing 
good club cricket. He was a very good baseball. In fact, he played Claxton Shield baseball for South Australia. So I became the bat boy for his club team, Glenelg, <clears throat> which is you know quite an interesting um, experience because you, you've got to know the game, otherwise you can run out and get hit by a bat or get hit by somebody trying to run the bases if you don't know what you're doing. So it was a terrific experience as a, as a young guy. And I don't know what age. I, I used to read a lot about baseball I'd try and get magazines and stuff from America and I used to listen on Armed Forces Radio on the shortwave radio oh, wow. you used to be able to get a few baseball games so I used to you know you, you, sometimes you'd spend ages trying to tune and get the baseball but I'd listen to all that and got really excited about it all and I don't know but at about age 10 or 11 I said to myself one day I'm going to the World Series I'm going to watch a World Series you see and I, and I kept saying this to myself one day I'm going to go to the World Series and I was oh, I, don't know, I would have been in my 40s I guess uh, well 86 yeah so I was 43 and suddenly and Channel 9 had the uh, the rights to the World Series so I used to uh, present it for host it for Channel 9 and I suddenly thought, Ian, all you've ever done is talk about I'm going to the World <laughs> Series, but you've never actually done anything about trying to go. Why don't you get off your backside and do something? So I spoke to David Hill and said, you know, can you get is any chance I could get a couple of tickets? And uh, he said, yeah. And that was the hard part. And he, he came back and he said, yep. So I rang Greg, my brother, and said, mate, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Will you come with me? Yep. So this was 90, 1986. So off we go, and we finally got to the World Series, and it turned out to be one of the classic World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Mets, and uh, it went the full seven games, and there were there were some unbelievably good games. So, you know, I got really lucky, but that that was probably, you know, it just sort of came about because I suddenly realised one day, you know, all you're doing is talking about it, and you're not doing anything about it. So it was actually a good lesson to me. We're talking to Ian Chappell. He's a former cricketer, a sports commentator, and also a writer who's just released a new book, Life, Larrikins and Cricket. You can find out more about it via our blog, vision.org.au. Ian, tell us a little bit about cricket. You come from a cricketing family. You, you mentioned earlier that uh, your father played very good uh, club cricket, yeah. but uh, you, your brother Greg and your brother Trevor are, are well known in Australian sporting circles for your involvement, not only at Shield Cricket, but also representing Australia as part of the national team. You, you've done so at an era where um, yeah, cricket wasn't probably the most highest profile and highest paid sport that it maybe is now. Yeah, it was. Um, it was very much, well, I suppose you'd call it semi-professional at best when uh, when I started playing and most of my career. Uh, you know, we had good fortune, as you mentioned. My father was a very good club cricketer, and he he was very encouraging um, to all of us. There were always there was always sporting equipment around the house, uh, cricket bats, baseball bats, uh, footballs, the whole lot. But we also had a grandfather who captained Australia at, at cricket, Victor Richardson. So. Uh, some of it was in the genes. And Vic is widely known or was widely known as the the second best all-round sportsman Australia's ever had. There's a guy called Snowy Baker who is regarded as the as the best all-round sportsman. Vic, the second best. And um, so, you know, sport was in the genes and, and I tell the story in the book of how I – there are times when I think of myself as more Richardson than Chapel because mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've read a lot about Vic after I retired, and I, you know, sometimes I chuckle to myself and say, "Ah, that's where it came from." So, yeah, cricket was, but you know, cricket was in the blood, I guess. Um, and I've often said to Greg, "Did you feel like you were forced or pushed into doing something that you didn't want to do?" And he said, "Oh, hell no, mate! I, you know, I loved every minute of it." So I think 
Martin, our father, I think he was able to hit that fine balance between encouraging and not pushing you so much that you got to the point where you said, no, I don't want to do this anymore, which I think happens with a lot of kids. They just get pushed too hard. They just throw their hands up and say, not doing it anymore. What was it like, though, playing at that level of both state and national level with mm. your two brothers? Yeah, It's not something you hear a lot about, even now. I mean, like, I can think of only a couple of uh, occasions over the last few decades where siblings have been in the same national side for cricket at the same time. Yeah, it's it was interesting. The, the first time I played, you see, Greg and I, a lot of people said when we started together in the South Australian side or when Greg came into the South Australian side, we had a couple of runouts. And people said, Croy, you wouldn't know these guys are brothers. They've got no understanding. <laughs> and that came about because we were always opponents in the backyard. You know, I was Australia and Greg was England. And we were playing against mm-hmm. each other. And that's how I looked upon Greg uh, for a long time. And then suddenly he came into the club side. And I, I felt he got out cheaply the first time I batted with him. And I felt like, you know, I almost felt like going up to the bowler and saying, you know, pick on someone your own size. <laughs> And that was in the semi-final. And then we played in the, we got through to the final. And we played in the final and I got out for three and Greg got 50 in the grand final. I thought, I don't have to worry about this guy. He can look after himself. So there was that sort of feeling about it. And then it was interesting. It was probably more interesting when we had to play against each other, when Greg went to Queensland and uh, and I'm still staying uh, playing for South Australia. And the first time we played against each other was at the Gabba. Uh, Greg was captain of Queensland. I was captain of South Australia. Anyhow, I came back home after the game. Queensland won it pretty comfortably. <clears throat> came back home and uh, I rang Jean up, our mother, and I said, oh, hi, Mum. Greg sends his love. And uh, I said, oh, by the way, uh, you'll be surprised to know that we had an argument on the field uh, after 10 minutes. And she said, uh, what took you so long? <laughs> so <laughs> Mum knew us pretty well. <laughs> Sibling rivalry. Exactly. And what about your brother, Trevor? What, what sort of... Uh level was he playing at while you two were, you know, captains of opposing teams? Well, uh, we played, I think we played one or two Shield games for South Australia, the three of us together. Uh, Mm. That's the only time the three of us played together. Um, One of those might have been when when Trevor and I were playing for South Australia against Queensland, I'm not sure. But we did definitely play one game, the three of us together for South Australia. And I think that was actually at the Gabba as well. Um, I, I, Trevor, I, I got that feeling a bit more with Trevor, um, of you know feeling like I needed to protect him a bit, mm. um, and also bear in mind that um, I played against Greg mostly in the backyard, and then when I left home, Greg started playing against Trevor, and, and Greg immediately became Australia, and Trevor had to be <laughs> England. <laughs> As it goes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the oldest is uh, gets the say. Um, so, but I, I think it was very hard for Trevor being the third, and, and particularly in Adelaide because it's you know sort of a, yeah, it's a small town in a lot of ways, and so you know when Trevor would fail, you'd hear them as he was walking off. You'd hear him in the member stand. Oh, he's not as good as those other two, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was very very hard for Trevor. Um, I mean, Greg explained it, and I, I never thought about it until well after we'd all retired. But Greg said, you paved the way for me. He said, because we played against each other in the backyard. And he said, and suddenly you're playing shield cricket and then you're playing test cricket. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've played against this guy. Maybe I can get to that level. And so, you know, that's the way Greg felt about it. But it was very hard for Trevor. And I think he played his best cricket when he moved out of Adelaide and he, he went and played for WA for a couple of years then joined World Series cricket, and then he played for New South Wales after that, and, and that's when he played his best cricket. 
We're chatting to Ian Chappell, or Chappelle, as he's also known. Yeah. He's got a new book out, Life, Larrikins and Cricket. Uh, some great stories in there about his time both in cricket and also as a sports commentator travelling all over the world. Ian, when it comes to uh, cricket, one of the things that people are thinking about nowadays, uh, especially uh, since the movie How's That came out, was about that big time in cricket history in Australia where things changed and it was all thanks to Kerry Packer and his insistence on getting the cricket rights for television. Now, you had an integral role to play in that because, uh, as we saw from what was recounted in the movie... At the time when Kerry Packer was thinking about this and wanting to do this, your brother Greg was captain of Australia. But then Mr. Packer decided, no, he wants Ian Chappell as his cricket captain. How did it come about? Now, I'm going to have to caution you here because I know that uh, from watching the movie and reading your book that uh, Kerry was a man of very colourful language. (laughs) We're going to have to just leave the colourful language aside. But tell us a little bit about that time in, in the late 70s where all of a sudden the landscape for cricket started to change. Well, Kerry was the right bloke at the right time, not not just because of his money, but there was also the power of the you know the television uh, network that he had, and he also had a lot of magazines as well at the time. So he was the right guy to come along at a time when the players were really angry about the deal they were getting, and it wasn't just the Australian players. I think you know when you think of the fact that there was fifty odd players from around the world all signed to play World Series cricket. I think that gives you an indication of how angry the players were with the boards for not paying them what they were due. So I'd retired from first class and international cricket. I was playing club cricket in Melbourne. And I used to fly over from Adelaide every Friday night. So I'd travel light because I'd I'd left my cricket gear and a lot of clothes in Melbourne, you see. So I flew into Melbourne from Adelaide and I just had a pair of jeans on and I had a, a denim jacket and I had a sort of a country and western shirt on and and I get the message, fly on to Sydney, you've got to have a meeting with Kerry Packer. So I walk in the office and uh, the first, he doesn't say, hello, how are you, anything like that. What are you, some sort of hmm, cowboy, are you? Yeah. And so, oh, yeah, I, I can't remember how I cope with that. But then the next thing he said to me was, well, who do you want in this bloody team, you know? And I said, well, hang on, Kerry, um, I'm not the captain. Greg's the captain of Australia. What do you think? This is a democracy. He said, uh, I'm paying the bills. I picked the captain. You're the captain. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, can I at least make a phone call to Greg and, you know, I get it sorted out with him? I don't want a family argument over this. So he let me do that. I rang Greg and said, told him what was going on. And Greg said, oh, he said, I've had the job for two years. He said, it's a terrible bloody job. He said, you can have it. It's all yours. So there was no argument there. And then he, Kerry said, he handed me a list and he said, who's, who's not on that list that you want? See, so I looked through the list and I said, Ashley Mallet, the, uh, the off spinner, terrific off spinner from South Australia and, and Australia, you see. And he said, I'm not playing that, I'm not paying that straight breaker, you see. And then proceeded to tell me how he didn't think Ashley Mallet could bowl and he wasn't going to pay him money. And so I was struggling a bit and I said, well, can we do a deal then? What's the deal? And I said, well, if Mallet can get you out in one over, will you sign him to a contract? And he said, yeah, all right. And with that, he's gone bang. And he, he had a console like you've got here, and he hit one of the buttons. And the female voice, his secretary, said, yes, Mr. Packer. And uh, Kerry said, uh, book me in for nets at the indoor school for the next week, will you? I'm going to practice my batting. So he was uh, he was not only competitive in television, he he was competitive in, in sport and business. He... Uh, There were many things I liked about Kerry Packer. One was the fact that you knew where you stood with him. Um, If he was angry with you, you you quickly found (laughs) out. (laughs) And as you said, in very colourful language. Mm. But also, 
uh, he impressed me with the pride that he had in his product. You know, he, he wanted it to be the best, uh, the television coverage. He wanted the commentary to be good. And I always thought that it was it was a good thing having the executive executive producer, as we used to call him. Mm. You knew that he was always listening to the to the commentary and watching the cricket. And to me, that wasn't a bad thing. It sort of kept you on your toes when you were commentating. <laughs> <laughs> now I remember watching World Series cricket when I was young in the eighties, mm. and uh, I, I thought it was great because for someone so young who who didn't really know a lot about the sport and just enjoyed watching the game, mm. you're watching the likes of Greg Chappell or Alan Border or, or mm. some of those names that I remember from my childhood play. It was a great thing. But when it first started in the seventies, it wasn't as, I guess, well-received by the general public right at the start, was it? Oh, no, there was, you know, there was a big, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it caused a big split in, in not just in cricket cricket circles but in the public. You know, there were the people who, um, who the traditional people who, oh, you know, how can they do this to the, to the traditional game? And then there were the other people who said, that's oh, good, you know, um, because the television coverage uh, changed enormously you know the the coverage of cricket before that um uh you know was sort of one you were only covering one end uh, rather than covering from both ends yeah enormous changes plus they got in closer to the players and i think that's that's what's helped the players you know you were talking earlier about today and how professional it is and how much money they're being paid and a lot of that has come about because you know, when it was covered by the ABC and the BBC in England, it could have been anybody out there. It could have been a couple of locals from the you know the club cricket playing out there because they didn't get in all that close. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, you know, Channel Nine they got in really close, and I think the people started ah n- now they felt like they knew these guys out there playing, mm-hmm. and um, so and that's obviously led to you know the marketing of uh, of players and so on is is much better. So those things impressed me with Kerry that he and he did say uh, he talked to me one of the early meetings I had with him he talked to me about how Channel Nine had just covered the Australian Open golf at at the Australian Golf Course in Sydney and he said the Yanks came out to watch and he said we covered all eighteen holes and he said it's never been done before and the Yanks went home and said oh you know we've got to cover all eighteen holes he said I want to do the same thing with cricket he said I want people to come here and watch our coverage and go back and. And use it on their coverage, and that happened. I, you know, I worked with the BBC a bit, and Keith McKenzie, their um, their director, he used to come to Australia each Australian summer, watch the cricket on nine, and then go back and take some of the ideas back to the BBC. Mm. And I love the marketing aspect too, because I remember going to, you know, we we didn't get to do it very often, so it was always a treat when we went to somewhere like McDonald's, and yeah. you know, around summertime you could get the World Series posters, you know, yeah. and. The, the three teams that were playing in the Tri-Series that year, and that, that's something that still sticks in my mind, the team sh- team shots of mm. the three teams that were coming to Australia for the yeah. big World Series Cup. Ian Chappell's our guest on 2020s. We discuss, well, as his book says, life, larrikin and cricket. In two things uh, as we finish up today. One is the name Chappelle. Yeah. Now, obviously, Chapel I. It's yep. got to have come from that, surely. But it's not something that you, you've ever sort of mentioned in your book as to how you come about just being called Chappelle. And the second thing that, that I guess is still a little bit of a mystery is why make the jump from being a sports person to being a commentator? You, you sort of touch on a little bit of that in your book. Well, the name, um, I think the first guy uh, was 
a club wicketkeeper at Glenelg uh, that I played with for many years, and he was a great character. And he uh, he called me, first of all, I think, the Italian cricketer. So there must have been some sort of mention of Ciappelli to, for him to think about the Italian cricketer. But it really became more broadly known when Greg came into the South Australian side because up until then, the name on the Ad, you know, Adelaide scoreboard or every scoreboard was just Chapel. And then when I came along, uh, when Greg came along, it became Chapel I and Chapel G. So then it started, you know, it was Chapelli, yeah. um, and it became much more broadly known. Uh, so that's really how the nickname came about. And, and I mean, I had a cabbie in Melbourne a few years ago. I, I got into the cab and he, you know, he started talking about a few things and he said, ah, you're Italian. And I said, no, I've got an, an Italian nickname, mate, but I'm not Italian. No, you're, you're Italian, you know, like that. I said, mate, I'm not Italian. No, no, your father's Italian, your mother's Italian. You're Italian. And in the end, I thought, oh, well, yeah, okay, I'm Italian, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, the other business of going from a, a, a sportsman to, you know, commentator, sports commentator and, and writer, I guess, once again, that – there's a bit of that in the genes because Vic, my grandfather, once he stopped playing uh, sport, he became he he rode on football and cricket in uh, in Adelaide, and uh, he was also a, a very well known broadcaster. He was he was around in those early days of the Ashes broadcast when you know you used to get the the ticker tape would come in from uh, from England, mm-hmm. and you'd be tapping the the pencil on the on a bit of wood to make it sound like the ball was being hit. He was doing uh, commentary back in those days and I can remember 1956 which was quite a you know quite a um, historic uh, Ashes series when Jim Laker got his 19 wickets and 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 Vic used to do this radio show and it was sort of like a variety show built around the cricket and, and so they'd be doing all these acts and and you know, uh, in between acts, they'd say, "Oh, you know, Australia have moved on to four for two hundred and twenty-five. Um, you know, Benno's forty-six and Miller's thirty-seven. So they were giving, updating the cricket scores and so on. But if a wicket fell, they just didn't matter what was going on at the time. They had this thing called rickety Kate. It had a big red nose like a like a um, a clown." And that would light up and flash. And this music, there was a tune. I can't remember what the tune was now. And that would start. And it meant that a wicket had fallen. And they'd break in and they'd tell you what had happened. So Vic was part of that. And in 1956, so what am I, 13, that was one of my treats. You know, mum and dad taking me along to the to watch this in the studio. And so I was a, I was a great admirer of, of my grandfather. And, you know, as I said in the book, I there are times when I feel like I'm more Richardson than Chapel. So I guess... Although Mum does say, or did say, that um, you know, I wanted to be a bus driver when I was a kid, I, I apparently used to sit on the top of the couch and make all these bus noises, and she thought I was going to be a bus driver. But um, I, I, you know, I didn't finish up a bus driver. And how do you handle being uh, one of the more senior members of Channel 9's commentary team now? You've been there for quite a while and you've still got some of these young fellas coming through. Like, well, I call them young because they're, they're fairly new to the game. Like Mark Taylor, Shane Warne, even Michael Slater mm. from time to time. You know, ones that haven't been there for as many years as you and some of the other members of the team have. There's a bit of shyacking goes on, uh, you know. Healy and Taylor are very quick to remind us that we're, you know, that we're old and uh, <laughs> decrepit, and uh, and we're very quick to remind them that they don't know much about the history of the game. We, you know, we love sort of hitting them with questions. You know, what, what was, uh, you know, what was Victor Trumper like? What did he do? Oh, who's Victor Trumper? You know, so so it's a bit of it's it's almost like a, an Australian dressing room. 
in the day, after a day's play where you sat around and, you know, you'd have the South Australians shyacking the Western Australians, so, oh, we're going to beat you in the Sheffield Shield match. So it's a bit like that, um, I, I guess. Well, what do they say? It's, it's a boys' game, cricket, and uh, you probably never grow up. And it's still something, obviously, that you enjoy. You, you, you can still hear the passion that you have yeah. when you, you're not just doing the commentating, but when you're doing some of the reports and that, you yeah. obviously still have that passion there, don't you? Yeah, you know, there are things that I enjoy about the game and I, I love to see a young player come along and make his mark, particularly when you've seen him as a really young guy. I, when I used to go to the academy when Rod Marsh was the head coach and, and, for instance, seeing a guy like Ricky Ponting when he's 16, 17 and you look at him and you think, oh, this kid can play and, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to be talking about him to, yeah. in a few years to come. And then you suddenly see him make it onto the international scene and then you see him become, you know, a top-class player. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to see yeah. that sort of thing. And when, you know, particularly the administrators do things that I don't like or I don't agree with, uh, then I, <laughs> I get very passionate. You know, I feel like sort of thumping the table and saying, get this damn thing fixed up. It's a problem, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, the passion's still there. Well, there's plenty of stories and plenty of anecdotes in your book, and it's great to be able to have a read through and, and find out some of those stories that I guess never have seen the light of day before now. And uh, Ian Chapel has gotten a few of them down. The book is called Chapali, Life, Larrikins and Cricket. You can find it in your bookstore, and we'll put up a link about uh, more with Ian Chapel and the book at our blog, vision.org.au. Ian, it's a little bit different for a Christian radio station to be talking to a sports person like yourself, but we really appreciate you coming along and having a chat to us and sharing a little bit of the stories with our audience. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts, or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au. Vision.org.au.